0: You're going to be this morning in the first chapter of Philippians, in verses 1 through 8. As you're turning there, i just remind you that there are uh, attendance register pads on the insides of the aisles. If you would pass those down the aisle, um, let us, it's a good way for us to know who's here. And if you're visiting, for us to write you a letter to thank you for joining us and give you some information about St. Andrews. Philippians chapter 1, as I said, we're going to read together verses 1 through 8. Let's give our attention now to God's holy and inerrant word. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. All of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Let's go before God again in prayer. Heavenly Father, we pray now as we approach Your Word that You would be so kind and so merciful to be with us, to take up your word and to write it upon our hearts. We are aware that in a room this size, we, we all come this morning from, from different places. and Some of us come in this room suffering, needing to hear words of comfort. Others of us come this morning needing to be challenged, and even rebuked. Others of us come this morning not knowing Jesus as our Savior and needing to know Him. We pray that you would be merciful this morning to take up your word and power by your Spirit and that you would apply it to us all in our different places. that chiefly this morning, as we spend time in your word, we pray that you would allow us to see Jesus, that we would be captured by his beauty, that we would find ourselves resting in his mercy. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. You know, I don't remember the Probably like a lot of you, I don't, I don't remember the specifics of very many stories from my early childhood. But there's this one time in my life, and I was probably in about the fourth grade that I remember very well. And it's really not the story, really, that that matters. What matters is why I remember this story from when I was just in the fourth grade. I, I can remember being in the fourth grade and it being time to play peewee football. And this was going to be my first time to play peewee football. And I was so excited, I had longed for that day. All of my older cousins, and I'd seen them all play, and I wanted to put on those pads. To wear the football pads, it was the beginning of a lot of things, a lot of exciting things. Fathers trying to live out their childhood dreams through their children, all of that that stuff. Um, It was all there. And they put me on this team called the... The termites. Uh, cruel joke by some dad, I'm sure. But, you know, as, as I think back on that time, I can tell you with confidence, I have no idea how many games we won. I don't even know if we won a game. I don't remember that. I can't remember who my coach was. I can't remember if I played or what position I played. I can't remember any of those details. Here's the thing that I remember. I remember. I remember the uniform. I don't know if that's weird, but I remember the uniform. I I remember the yellow pants and the green mesh jersey with the yellow numbering and lettering on it. I remember getting to put on my first pair of shoulder pads. I remember trying to figure out where all those pads in your pants were supposed to go. I can remember my first mouthpiece, my... The helmet there were days I probably shouldn't say this, but there were certainly days when there was no practice, no game, but I was going to put that that uniform on. I loved that uniform, and here's why I loved it. That uniform meant to me that I was now a football player and and I had arrived you, you know it gave me this. Strange as it may seem to you, it gave me this strange sense of security and identity. just that uniform. It, it meant to me that I belonged and I knew who I was in that uniform. Listen, knowing who we are and, and really having a sense of belonging, it is it, it is extremely difficult to put into words how much that means to us. And you know that I'm not just talking about fourth graders. Because as adults, I mean, we see this all the time. A lot of the drive that we see that is really just easily mistaken for ambition is is really just a desperate effort to define ourselves, to say, this is who I am, and I matter, and I'm important To prove those things to ourselves, it's absolutely fundamental to us. I mean, for you and me to answer that question, for us to answer that question brings a great sense of security to us. It brings a great deal of confidence into our lives. To answer that question, to arrive at the answer to that question, gives us reasons and spurs on our boldness. Gives us reasons for changing our behavior and becoming different. But I think there's the other side that you have to mention to this as well. You see, if you don't know who you are, if you don't know who you are or where you belong, it creates in you a deep fear, a a restless anxiety. To not know who you are leaves you confused. And it leads to relentless, restless, and destructive pursuit of identity. You know, last week we introduced the book of Philippians with verse 6. And, where we, and that's where we saw the confidence that we have in the Christian life. that A confidence that has nothing to do with our work, but everything to do with the work of God in us. A confidence that says God begins this work, He carries this work, and He completes this work. He's making us glorious for the day when Jesus returns for His church. And today I want you to see, in these eight verses, how Paul reminds the Philippians of who they are and how he reminds us of who we are as God's people and what kind of difference really that identity should be making in our lives. And so here it is. These are my three things. Who are we? We're set apart in Christ Jesus. We share in God's grace and we are partners in the gospel. So first, we're set apart in Christ Jesus. In the first verse, we're told that Paul and Timothy are writing to the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi together with the overseers and deacons. You know, the word saints, it can obviously be a little confusing, I think, to us because of how that word has been used in other traditions. It's kind of like it is referring to some kind of achieved, you know, higher standard of morality, the cream of the crop, uh, those kinds of things. But in the Bible, it isn't a select group of people necessarily that it's that's in view in the church. It's a word used to describe all believers. The word simply refers to the holy ones or to the set-apart ones. You see, Paul is telling the Philippians in the very first few words of this letter to to his friends, he's saying this is who we are. Fundamentally, this is where our identity rests. We are people who have been set-apart by God in Christ Jesus. He is saying that God did something to you. That God did something for you. I mean, with the fall, the world was plunged into ruin and misery and sin. Death came, twistedness came, brokenness came. But this is what Paul says about the church. To all those who believe in Jesus, you were set apart from that condemnation. You were set apart to something else. You were set apart in Christ Jesus. God rescues us and sets us apart to himself. And you need to hear in this the glorious good news of the gospel. That it is an announcement that God has done something for you, not that you have done something for yourself. The work of Jesus in his life and death purchased a people who would be set apart. It's the free gift of the gospel to all who believe. But it's more than just that we are set apart by God and unto Him. You may or may not be familiar with Paul's letters in the New Testament. I I don't know where, where you are with that. But he loves, he loves this little phrase, in Christ Jesus. Or in Christ or in Him. He uses it all the time to talk about our union to Him. To talk about our standing with God being secured in Jesus. To talk about our acceptance before God being based on the person and work of Jesus. We are in Him. You know, I think most of us have heard people say, you know, I I have Jesus in my heart. And I have no problem with that statement. I've said that statement before myself. But what I want you to think with me, just even though it's just for a second, is to think with me about the fact that the Bible overwhelmingly refers to our being in Jesus rather than Jesus being in us. And it's because it is only in Jesus, being inside of Him, that you can be accepted. Resting in Him, we understand that He lived the life we should have lived and died the death we should have died. We hide ourselves in Him. Our identity is all wrapped up in who Jesus is and what He has done. You see, the deadly and restless pursuit of trying to forge your own identity, it dies at the cross. And you are set free from it when you understand that you are in Jesus. Let me give you one brief example of how knowing this actually changes you. I got to know a particular guy, and I'm going to have to skip over the details of his story just to avoid being scandalous this morning, but... Let's just say he was living a life of wickedness, things that would make most of you blush, things that you've only heard about in passing. And we became friends and we got we got to talk about the gospel in Jesus. And we we talked very plainly about his need, his desperate need to be in Jesus. To be washed in Jesus, to be covered in Jesus, he needed a rest. Not in his efforts, but in Jesus. You know, I, I really am not sure as I, I look back on on the time that I spent with this guy. I am not sure exactly when this guy became a Christian, but I'll tell you when when I noticed that he was changed by the gospel. It really was when he just he started saying no to his girlfriend, and when he started saying no to his friends, and just. And really no to all of the things that he used to do. And what he would simply say to people was this. It's just not who I am anymore. You see, it was his understanding. I don't know that he would have put it in this language. But it was his understanding of who he was in Jesus. That is not who I am anymore. That gave him the freedom to walk away from the things he used to love. From the things he used to take pleasure in. It's, it was understanding who he was in Christ that caused other things to now become attractive to him. It was understanding that God had set him apart in Jesus that changed him. You know, knowing our identity it isn't simply a mental exercise for us. Now I have the extra head knowledge, you know, something else in my theological library, in my mind. Knowing who we are, it is a foundational reality. Knowing who we are in Jesus gives us the freedom to change, to struggle, to grow. It's who we are. Well, following this closely, I want us to see that we're told here another aspect of our identity. And that is that we share in God's grace together. I'm taking these verses a little bit out of order. Um, But you understand that we were never made to exist in isolation from others. I mean, we were made for community. You go back to the very beginning of the Bible. In the garden, Adam, God made Adam, and Adam is there in the garden. And it's a perfect world without sin, without fall, without misery. And yet it is not good for Adam to be alone. And so God makes a woman. Man was made for a need for community. And so when God sets us apart, when He comes and redeems us, it makes sense to us that He would put us back into the right kind of community the kind of community we were made for and this community that we're we're going to talk about here is distinguished by the fact that we share in God's grace together that's the mark of it listen to verse 7 again it's right for me to feel this way about all of you since i have you in my heart for whether i am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel all of you share in god's grace with me look we're talking about the apostle paul here this is not He's not a small-time guy, right? I, I mean, if you're familiar with your Bible, he, he's a big deal. I mean, he really is a big deal. I mean, humanly, he is responsible for taking the gospel out of Israel into to the Gentiles. I mean, he was the best church planner you could have ever imagined. He was he was a theologian extraordinaire. He was an evangelist. He was an apologist who was unmatched. He wrote the majority of the books in your New Testament. And here's what I'm saying. If there there was ever a Christian rock star, Paul was it. I mean, he seems larger than life as you read your Bible. And that really ought to make what Paul says here absolutely astonishing to you. Because he is saying that he isn't in some other category. But like you and me, he stands before God solely by grace. We share in the same thing together. You see, your only hope as a Christian is my only hope as a Christian was Paul's only hope as a Christian. The grace of God in Christ Jesus. We are all debtors to grace. Let me suggest that this is actually what makes the gospel offensive to some. C.S. Lewis writes about pride this. He says, Pride gets no pleasure out of having something. Pride only has pleasure in having more of it than the next person. Proud people are not really proud of being successful or intelligent or good-looking. They're proud of having more success, more intelligence, and better looks than the people around them. So why is the gospel offensive? because it comes and it says it doesn't matter if you think you have more than someone else. It doesn't matter if you think you've arrived beyond someone else. It says quite simply that we all fundamentally share in God's grace. In Christianity, kings and princes, the moral and the upright, the well put together and upper class merit no more than the beggar, the thief, or the homeless. We are all debtors before God and dependent on the grace of Jesus Here's what I'm saying. This grace forms a very peculiar community, and it's peculiar in this sense. All of us, certainly myself included, we gravitate to those with whom we share common interests. And, you know, to those with whom we share similar likes and dislikes, and to those who have similar backgrounds and come from the same place in society, to those who share similar views and personalities, and so on. I mean, it's just the most natural thing in the world for us. But back to this whole identity thing, right? And who we are. If who we are at the core are debtors to God's grace in Jesus, then I would suggest to you this. A community that is only bound by likes and dislikes and similar backgrounds and so forth really begins to look quite shallow in the face of the gospel. Because you see, Paul here, he's in prison when he writes this letter. He's in a totally different situation, circumstance, environment than these people. He has a totally different background. He comes from a Jewish background. Here are these Gentiles, these Roman citizens. And yet he talks about having these people in his heart. He speaks of his longing for them. He goes over and over about his affections for them. Why? Not because they're similar in all those externals, but because they share in God's grace together. I have a friend that has this puzzle, and, it, and this puzzle is made out of these blocks of wood. And if you finish and complete this puzzle, it actually stands on your coffee table or whatever as a little statue of blocks of wood wood put together. And the thing about it is it actually takes a couple of people to put this puzzle together because all of these pieces, as you're putting them together, you need several hands because it just keeps wanting to fall apart. It just keeps wanting to scatter again into these random pieces Of wood, Um, In order to make the puzzle stand in place, you have to to hold the puzzle together and then you have to slide this pin into the place where the the little eye holes are on the dog. And once you get that pin in place, it locks the whole puzzle together and is able to stand without any hands touching it. Only when that pin is in place can it stand and those random blocks become one thing. Paul is saying here... That we are bound together by God's grace to form this peculiar community. We are bound by grace. And that is what holds us together. A community where very, very different people can come together. A community where the rich and the poor and the ugly and the beautiful, the well-educated and the unlearned. Where they don't find a shallow connection, but they find the deepest connection possible. A connection in the grace of God. Let's speak practically for just, just a second here. There is a certain vulnerability that we long to have with others. That longing was put there by God. This, this longing to be in community. This longing to, to both know and be known. And you know, what we see from experience is that the fall wrecked that. That it ruined it for us. I mean, I'm not saying that it took away the longing. We still have that fundamental longing to be known and to know. But we are so fearful in this broken world of being opened. Frightened of moving into one another's lives for fear that someone might see us as we are. And turn and run as fast and as far away as they can. We are fearful of moving into the lives of others. We're scared that what we're scared about what rocks we might unturn, what we might find, unaware if we might be able to handle it. I mean, how do you get how do you get free of that fear and have com, have the community that you long for? I mean, because Paul obviously has it with these people. I mean, you can see his vulnerability just in the way he describes his affections. For them. And is longing for them. You get that freedom. When you understand God's grace to you in Jesus. You don't have to hide from others. Because you know that the king of the universe. Loves you and accepts you. You don't have to fear the mess of other people's lives. And what you might overturn there. Because you know the conquering, cleansing power. Of God's grace in Jesus. You see, in understanding who we are, we form a very peculiar community, a community bound chiefly by God's grace. All right, finally, who are we? We're set apart in Christ Jesus, we share in God's grace, and the last thing that we're going to see is that we are partners in the gospel. I think that most of the time, we probably want to stop with point two. We want to say, okay, we'll stop with our thoughts of community and sharing and safety and security and And all those kinds of things that come through grace. But right in the middle of our passage, Paul reminds the Philippians of the movement that the gospel creates. As John Stott writes in his commentary, he says this those who truly possess the gospel, they also propagate it. Our identity in the gospel, what I'm saying to you is this it gives us a purpose. The advancement of God's kingdom, we are partners in the gospel. Verse 3 is a strange little verse because it can be translated in one of two ways. It can be translated to say that Paul thanks God every time he remembers the Philippians, or it can be translated to say that Paul thanks God every time the Philippians remember him. And I think that the second is probably the most likely. Because you see, one of the main reasons for Paul writing this letter is because the Philippians have given him a gift. And that's what spurs on his writings to them, that they have remembered him. You see, Paul, I think, is joyful because their care of Him proves that they have taken up the cause of the gospel. That it has spurred them on to action. That they aren't huddled up together in Philippi. But they are concerned about the advancement of the good news of Jesus. In verse 4, Paul says that he prays with joy. In verse 5, tells you the reason for that joy. He says, because of your partnership in the gospel. And what's in view with this language isn't simple. It, 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 well, let, let me boil it down like this. They share a common vision, is what Paul is saying. One, one writer says this, they rolled up their sleeves and got involved in the advance of the gospel, and that is what explains Paul's joy. Because they are partners in the advance of the gospel. You see, the book of Philippians is often referred to as being a letter of joy. Everybody, refer the word joy, rejoicing, it appears over and over throughout the book like no other book that Paul has written. And, and Paul seems to be in this letter, of all the people he writes to, he seems to be most pleased with the Philippians. And it really is because they have taken up this cause of the gospel. Be, because they share this vision with him, the community of saints... God's people, they were never intended to huddle huddle together. Only facing one another, only dealing with one another, only loving one another. You see, we are always going to retreat into ourselves if what we mainly think is this. It's us against the world. It's when we understand that God set us apart to be for the world that we take up this cause that we take up this vision and we are partners in the gospel and we become a community that is really facing out. Let me try and quickly tie all this together and bring it to a close by thinking with you about Jesus. Because if some of what we are saying this morning sounds familiar, I think it's familiar because Paul stole his ideas about our identity from Jesus. I mean, that's where he got all this stuff. You know, in John 17, Jesus, the high priestly prayer, you may be familiar with it. Jesus is praying for his disciples there just before he goes to his trial, just before he goes to his crucifixion. You don't need to turn there, but listen and go back later. In verses 15 and 16, Jesus prays to his father. They are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world but that you protect them from the evil one. In other words, God's people are in the world, but not of the world. And that ought to sound familiar. God's people are set apart in Christ Jesus. They are set apart in Him, not taken out of the world, but set apart by the gospel. Just four verses later in Jesus' prayer, Jesus prays for all believers, and He prays this, that all of them may be one. Father, just as You are in Me and I am in You, may they also be in us that the world may believe that you sent me that ought to sound familiar jesus is talking about this peculiar community that the world is to look at and to see their unity he's talking he's talking about us being in the father and in jesus he's talking about us sharing together in god's grace as this community finally i want you to think about jesus being crucified and raised from the grave you know the story Matthew, Jesus Jesus crucified, he's raised from the grave, and then he appears again to his disciples. And there at the end of Matthew, Matthew chapter 28, you have the famous Great Commission. And a lot of us here could quote that Great Commission. Jesus has appeared to his disciples from the grave. And you've got to think that what Jesus has has to say to his disciples is going to be pretty important at this point. They have now begun to understand who they are in Him. That Jesus was crucified in their place. That they have victory over the grave because Jesus has victory over the grave in their place. You They're beginning to understand their identity. And Jesus comes to them with this great commission. And it says, therefore, go and make disciples. Now, we don't need to read the rest, but you remember that, right? Therefore, go and make disciples. And it's actually not that great of a translation. Some of you know. It's poor because the word go is actually a participle, a present participle, you know, an I-N-G word. That Jesus is actually saying, he is assuming that his people are going. When they understand who they are in me, they will be going. It's not a command. It's not an imperative. It's an assumption that your identity would propel you outward. That it would cause you to be a part of advancing the gospel. That it would cause us to partner together in the cause of Jesus. I want to leave you with thinking about this little phrase. You're probably familiar with it. Being precedes doing. Being always precedes doing. You see, it is who we are that affects the way we live. It is understanding who we are that moves us to change. It's understanding who we are that frees us to move into each other's lives. It's understanding who we are that causes us to face outward, that causes us to be for the world and not against the world. Being precedes doing. Our identity is God's people in Jesus. It's in Jesus. It's in His grace. It is in our partnership in the gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and we confess to you that we are often guilty of trying to establish our own identity. An identity apart from you and apart from your grace and your mercy. We want to be the self-made man, the self-made woman. We want to be able to look at ourselves and say that is who we are. And we pray this morning that you would cause us to look at Jesus... And say that is who we are in Him. And that understanding our identity in Him would move us. Move us to change. That it would move us into one another's lives. That it would move us out to the people you have placed in our lives. that That it would move us to be a part of advancing your kingdom. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.